Arlington Baptist Podcast, and let me say to you a happy and holy new year, as we are now into 2023. Not only is this a new year, but this is also a new season for our podcast. We're beginning season three. We've completed uh, two seasons of our podcast and are so excited about continuing on, uh, getting out the truth of the Word of God and uh, helping Christians and hopefully uh, uh, seeking out and finding some new people that will listen to our podcast and and uh, be interested in the truths that we're trying to uh, get out to people. So we are going to continue today in our study uh, that we were doing at the end of last year, just about a month ago, on the book of Revelation. We took about a month, of actually four episodes, to end 2022 in studying and uh, just reflecting on the great event of the Lord's coming that we celebrate uh, each year called Christmas. And I hope you enjoyed those studies in Matthew and Luke. But we want to get back to our verse-by-verse a study in the book of Revelation. We've got a lot of other things we hope to do this year and uh, have some other guests and so forth. Join me on the podcast. I always enjoy that a lot, and so we'll try to do that soon. But I want to uh, continue this ongoing verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. It seems like out of all the books of the Bible, uh, people have the most interest today in the book of Revelation. And I understand that because we're living in such uh, tremendous times, such um, confusing times, uh, many end-time events that we see around us, those who, uh, of us who know the Bible, who believe the Bible, who uh, look at the current events and weigh them according to Bible prophecy. Uh, so I think that's why there is such a great interest in Revelation. And I've taught it with our people, among our men's groups especially, a few times already. And so I decided to go ahead and do this study after I had done a study called Understanding the End, which was a kind of a fuller look at the study of eschatology or end times prophecy uh, as a whole. So this is kind of an addendum in addition to that. Uh, So I would recommend if you're new to the podcast and you're interested in Bible prophecy and end time events, I would encourage you to go back to our uh, podcast from season two. I think there's about 12 or 13 of them, I believe, uh, called Understanding the End. But now let me pick up where we left off a while back on the book of Revelation. We ended chapter four. So we're just kind of starting into this. We did maybe a couple months worth of uh, podcast. Uh, we just do one a week, as you know, and try to keep to a certain time frame. We covered the first three chapters, which are really introductory and and uh, setting a, a format for how the Lord directed this book of Revelation to first be given to the seven churches in Asia Minor. But when we got to chapter four, we saw a major division in this book, and that really took us to what we believe is the end time itself, still later in time, further uh, for us as well, has not happened yet, but it is the next uh, major event uh, that's ready to happen on the time frame of end times prophecy. And that was the rapture we talked about in chapter 4. We believe it was pictured, no doubt symbolically, as much of the book of Revelation has symbolic uh, significance. Uh, We saw that in verse 1. After this, John said, I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, 
And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And so we began into that chapter in saying, uh, teaching that we believe from here on, from chapter 4 uh, through the end of the book of Revelation, we're really talking about future events that have not yet transpired. Uh, now, we're going to get a twofold, uh, maybe two-pronged aspect of this. We're going to see what's going on in heaven and what's going on down on earth. Uh, once the rapture takes place, of course, I believe with a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of prophecy that Christians, all believers, uh, and as well as those all under the age of accountability, not held accountable for their sins before God and his justice. I think they're going to be taken to heaven. What will be happening in heaven is some of the things we we're seeing, but then also what will be going on down on earth after the rapture, beginning a period of time which Bible prophecy teachers have long called the tribulation period. And so with those things in mind, Let's pick up again in chapter 5 now. Chapter 4 and 5 are very similar. They continue uh, the, the whole um, event of the, uh, the scene up in heaven, the heavenly scene of the throne. And John is, is taken there. He says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And we've been getting this very amazing, awesome, mind-boggling, uh, hard to comprehend aspect of heaven. And remember, uh, when John writes the things about heaven and other events that we can't even really wrap our minds totally around, he just has to use whatever earthly language God gives him to, to put it in some uh, form of understanding to us, at least to get a glimpse, at least to get a, a, a view, a perspective at least. We can't fully understand it all. Uh, because heaven is so much different. Eternal things are so much bigger than what we can comprehend here in our finite uh, lives now. But uh, So we're trying to uh, weed through this. Uh, the book of Revelation is difficult uh, because it contains so many of these uh, heavenly future scenes that the writer John had to put in in time when he wrote it, and it would be inspired, and then, of course, perpetuated with the keeping of Scripture for the last 2,000 years now or so. And so as we go through it, we're trying to take a balanced approach. I don't want to get too bogged down in a more of a microscopic look, which that's necessary and, and beneficial at times. It's just not the purpose of these podcasts. On the other hand, I don't want to just go too uh, telescopically, big picture through here, that where we don't give you enough information that you could at least grasp what's uh, happening. So we're kind of trying to take it in a, in a little bit of a middle-of-the-road approach there. So let me, again, get back into the text. And we what we usually do, I do this in my own teaching at the church here uh, each week as I teach through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights and the New Testament and in, uh, in our Bible study for the adults that I teach out in the sanctuary each Sunday. And that is I go through the text uh, I have readers read, or I'll read now, of course, on the podcast, but uh, we read the text first, and then we go back and explain it. And that's what uh, Bible teaching is supposed to do. Uh, I still believe that that's the greatest need we have in our churches, is to get people back to the Bible, uh, get people back to understanding the Bible. See, uh, the Bible is only the most important book when we understand it. 
uh, and interpret it properly and correctly. And that's how God gave it. He didn't just give it to be some kind of an icon or a rabbit's foot type superstitious thing. He gave it to be understood as his revelation to the world and his revelation to his people. To know the mind of God, to know the will of God, to know where we came from, why we're here and where we're going. And so that's how we try to study it. Well, let's get back to the text. I'll read from chapter 5 now. If you have your Bible, I'm using again the King James Version, the authorized version. If you have another version, it's going to read a little bit differently, but hopefully you can follow along with me. Uh, In verse 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now let's stop and and go back over what we've seen here. So we're still in this heavenly scene that was described in chapter 4. Uh, We have, of course, this amazing throne. We saw it described in verses 3 and uh, uh, 3 through 5, really. Uh, Well, actually, 3 through 6 of chapter 4. We had these 24 elders, we believe, (coughs) excuse me, are probably representatives, at least, of the Old and New Testament economies, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. We saw the four beasts, which are very mysterious. We're not sure. Four creatures. They're called beasts in our King James Version. It it doesn't mean they're some monstrosities. It means they're angelic creatures. We think they picture uh, the four Gospels. And I went through that in, in a previous podcast episode on verse 7 of chapter 4. But anyway, as we look at this scene, now we, we go to the throne itself. And this chapter starts with with just a really important statement. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Wow, the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Of course, he that sits on the throne is God. And him that sat on the throne is a book. Uh, uh, He holds a book in his hand. Now, the fact that John sees this in the hand of him that sat on the throne uh, would indicate this has to be Christ. Um, but again, the language here, uh, as we go through this, we're going to try to decipher it the best we can. We know the Father is a spirit, Jesus said. The Father is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4, and uh, that passage. The Holy Spirit, of course, is a spirit. Uh, they do not have a tangible body, uh, a physical body, but Christ, the Son, the third or second person of the triune Godhead, does have a body, an eternal body that he dwells in, and in heaven he remains in that body, and it's still a body that shows the marks of his crucifixion and his hands and his feet and his side. So uh, the fact that he sees uh, one uh, who has a, has a scroll, a, a, a book in his right hand would indicate uh, it's Christ, and this book is going to be important. It's a we call it a scroll. It's called a book here, but it could be translated as a scroll because it has these seven seals, and it's going to be unsealed as we get into chapter six. But then it says there's this strong angel, and there's a lot of angels mentioned in Revelation. I've said this already. We can't be sure of which uh, angel, the, uh, uh, which angel the this one is, or all of these are. 
Uh, many of them are unnamed, uh, and we have so many of them mentioned, we can't be sure uh, who we're exactly talking about. I think there's actually passages like in chapter 10, we'll get to later, that that person mentioned as an angel appears to be Christ. Because remember, the word angel in its generic meaning is simply a messenger, a special messenger from God. And and Jesus, of course, fulfits, uh, fulfills that uh, as coming down from God to be a messenger of the Father and of the Spirit to the world. He gives the greatest message of all, uh, the message of the gospel and of salvation. So, we don't know who the strong angel was, but he asks a question, and it's going to involve this book that's in the right hand of him that sits on the throne. He says, who is worthy to open the book and to loose or undo uh, uh, the seals that are holding this book together? And no man in heaven, nor on earth, of course this is true, uh, was able to open the book, neither even to look thereon. Now, now let me stop and again, uh, we try to decipher through some of these uh, very hard to understand parts of Revelation. We're not 100% sure what this book is, this seven-sealed book. Um, uh, commentators go from, some say it's the Bible itself. Uh, some say that it may be the, I've heard uh, the, the idea of it being maybe the, the deed to the universe, the literal uh, written document that gives ownership of God to this whole universe. Um, I don't know uh, if I can, you know, hold to one view more than the other. Uh, this is an important scroll, no doubt, but I can't be sure what it represents. Uh, it does seem to represent, as it's going to unfold, I think the best interpretation will probably be the one that says this scroll is opening up the end time events. In other words, it's still sealed because the end time uh, has not yet happened, but John is writing about when it will unfold and will happen. And since it's a book that can be read, uh, it appears to be, uh, could be this very book of Revelation. It could mean other prophetic parts of the scripture that deal with it. It could be the Bible itself. And simply the idea that when it is finally opened, the seals are open, then the unleashing, the beginning, uh, kind of like a domino effect, of the second coming of Christ and all the events of the end times will unfold. So I'm going to stick with that as the best uh, potential uh, interpretation of what this seven-sealed book is. But what happens is, John says he weeps, and I wept much. Uh, this book must have been so important, uh, and John wanted to see it opened, but nobody could open it because it says no man was worthy. He says, for no man because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, needed the look thereon. I think th the way we can look at that is that John was so anxious, as every Christian should be, uh, for Jesus to come again, that when he considered the end of time and he considered the culmination, the climax of all of history and the actual coronation of Christ's return and setting up his kingdom and creating a new heaven and new earth, all the things that Revelation will later write about and we've discussed in uh, prophecy in general before in our series. Um, I think John is just excited about the end coming. Uh, he wants Christ to come in all his glory as every Christian wants. And so he's sad that no one can seem to open this book to maybe make that all unfold and happen. And so we go on now to see uh, what is just such a tremendous uh, uh, consequence to 
this scene as John is weeping and, and he, he seems to be so upset about the fact that no one is worthy to open this book that's in the hand of him that sits on the throne. And that tends to, again, back up the idea that only God can open this book because only God has foretold these events. Only God will uh, be able to make these events come to pass uh, as he has written because by his foreknowledge, he knows everything that happens before it happens, and that's how he can state how it will happen. And so, let's move on now. And one of the elders, verse 5, saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Now, let's stop there and go back and talk about this. Now, here we have John... Uh, he hears about this uh, uh, this scroll not being able to be opened. And then another elder, one of the 24 elders, uh, con- com- uh, consoles him and comforts him by saying, Don't weep, weep not, because behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, this is Christ. Isn't this an amazing title? The Lion, capital L. Anytime you see a, a regular... Uh, word, if you will, a regular noun, capitalized, like the animal of a lion, uh, capitalized speaking of deity. And this is the lion of Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah is Christ. And it's called the root of David. That's, again, a phrase we've seen. It's in the Old Testament. G- Jesus is the root and offspring uh, of David. He came from David's line. That's the Davidic covenant uh, that he came through, the, the royal line of David. And uh, the the elder says to John, he hath prevailed. He has prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. Now, remember, this hasn't happened yet in our time as we go over this text together. But this is all prophetic of what's going to happen. So he's showing you, kind of like in a time warp going in the future, what will actually happen. And this seven-sealed book will be open, And the only one that has power has authority to open it, is Christ. And it says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne uh, of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. That just brought up a lion. Now we go to a lamb. Isn't this amazing? Now, this is, this is very um, symbolic of the two comings of Christ. Here he is called in verse 6, a lamb with a capital L. There it is, the lion with a capital L. Now a lamb with a capital L. The lamb pictures his first coming. The lion pictures his second coming. When Jesus came the first time, he came to suffer and die. This is what's pictured here and said in these words, as it had been slain. See, I told you, Jesus dwells in a body, the same body he rose from the dead in. He's in heaven in that body. He ascended off the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1 in that same body. And in his hands, his feet inside of the wounds that will forever be there to remind us of the suffering he went through to save us from our sins. And so uh, it says, now here back to this very symbolic language, he has seven horns and seven eyes. 
which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. This does some clarification for us because Jesus doesn't literally have seven horns coming out of his head or seven eyes on his face. It's symbolic. It talks about eyes, of course, speak of seeing, and it, and it says that he works through the Spirit. He is one with the Holy Spirit and with the Father, and he sees all things. The Old Testament, the Proverbs says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And so it speaks of his eyes. Horns speak of strength, of power, and he has perfect power. Seven is the number of perfection, perfect seeing, perfect power. Uh, here is pictured, and, and it unites him with the thought of the Spirit, as we saw the seven spirits in chapter 1. The perfect Holy Spirit has the same attributes as the Son and of the Father. Now, notice what it says now. He, the Lamb and the Lion, same person, Jesus Christ, he's on the throne, he's in his place in heaven, uh, he ascended there, that's where he is today. John is picturing him there, showing him there in this scene. He came and took the book out of the right, of, right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Now, again, I, I told you, I don't want to seem contradicting in what I'm saying here, uh, because it is hard to follow this. We know that the Father does not have a literal, tangible body that is seen on the throne. Uh, Jesus does. But how he takes it from the right hand of him, uh, I don't want to be too literal on that. Uh, literally, it could be the Father who has the scroll and Jesus takes it from him. Uh, we don't want to be bogged down in, in too much uh, the mystery of how this could be. If it was Christ who had it in his hand or it's the Father who gives it to him, that's not really important. What's important is he, he's able to take this book and he has it in his right hand. It's, it's him that has the authority to take the book, it says, uh, in his hands. And when he had taken the book, now this is so important that as soon as he has this book in his hand, and, it, and, and it's anticipating him opening this book, of course. The very fact that he has the book is, is making the elders and the beasts realize he's about to open this book. And as I said, I think the best way to interpret that is they see this as the beginning of the end, the, the unraveling of the entire end times uh, events. And so as soon as he takes the book, Maybe this is the first time this book has ever been moved. It's ever uh, even been brought to the forefront uh, to see what it is and what it means, what it'll actually do when it's opened. And they fall down in a, in a, in a state of worship, as we've seen this, this uh, several times already in this book. These elders and, and beasts, these creatures, they fall down before the Lamb. Show, shows that He is worthy of worship, by the way. Anybody that doesn't Consider and recognize Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, equal with the Father and the Spirit, uh, is simply teaching uh, heresy, is not a Christian, is not teaching Christian doctrine. Jesus receives worship like the Father and the Spirit. We see it all through Scripture. Here's another example of it. These uh, heavenly creatures bow down and, and fall before his feet. And it says, having every one of them harps, and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. This is really intriguing to me. Uh, harps very much makes us think of worship, music. Isn't music a wonderful aspect of worship? I love good, godly Christian music, church music, 
here at our church, we, we do sing the traditional old hymns, but we sing some good new music as well. We don't believe that everything that we, we sing in church has to be from the 17 and 1800s. There's a lot of good new music uh, that's done today. But we're conservative in our view of music. We don't believe uh, our church ought to be a, a rock concert or a hip-hop concert. We don't have smoke and mirrors and, and dark lighting and so forth. We, we don't believe in, in crossing over into that kind of worldly atmosphere. We believe that music ought to be uplifting. We ought to get involved in it. I, I have no problem with people lifting their hands and, 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 and getting involved in the music and the worship service. That's fine. I, I enjoy that. I do that myself at times because sometimes you're just lifted in the spirit and you feel like showing that in a bodily way. You ever go over to Israel? When we were over in Israel at the Wailing Wall, you'll see those those Jews, uh, the uh, Lubavitch Jews, the Hasidic Jews that are dressed in black with the uh, with the uh, long sideburns. Uh, and as you watch them pray, you'll see that they they bob back and forth, and moving their bodies. And you say it looks strange to the outside world, but the reason they do that is is they take from the Old Testament that we had to be in, totally involved in in prayer in worship, but not. It shouldn't be just our minds and maybe our mouths moving or thinking uh, audibly or uh, inaudibly, but it ought to be our whole bodies get involved in worship. And I respect that. And and I think sometimes uh, in churches like uh, the ones that I'm a part of and have been, been involved in, our Baptist churches, sometimes uh, we have been much too reserved and worried about what people think. Uh, here, here are these these saints. They fall before the throne and before the Lamb, and they have these harps. Remember David, the great psalmist who wrote over half of the 150 psalms. He was the great harp player, and and so the harps make us think of worship and and singing and music that glorifies God. But then this really wonderful. Uh, reference to these vials. Vials are, are little vases or little containers of some kind. Golden meaning they're so important. Golden, gold is the metal of royalty. Uh, these are expensive. They're made to be important. They're vital. They're valuable. And it says of the odors, uh, that word odors can be translated uh, fragrance or incense, not odors in a negative way. We think of the word odor today kind of almost in a you know, an offensive uh, way, uh, something that smells bad. No, this is supposed to be in a good way. And and these prayers are like the odors of of the saints that go up to God. And this is a beautiful teaching. Do you know God loves when his people pray? We pour out our hearts to God and our prayers go up to God and, and they please him. In the Old Testament, I won't take time to uh, make reference to this. You can look in the concordance and find some of these great references where the prayers of God's people are like a sweet-smelling savor. The King James uses that statement. A sweet smell to God in his nostrils. It's symbolic, of course, but it, it's, it, it's true. It's still very literal in this sense that God loves the prayers of his people. And these uh, elders and creatures, uh, they have in their hands, they have with them, evidently in some way they're involved uh, with the praying of, of the saints. And uh, we won't make too much out of that. It's a mystery. It is to me, but I will say that these 
these representatives of the Old and New Testaments evidently uh, represent the fact that on earth we as God's people are to be praying from Old New Testament times. Prayer has always been an important part of our relationship with God, of our worship to God. Privately, yes. Collectively, yes. In the church today. And so uh, I think it's a beautiful thing that God loves uh, to hear uh, the prayers of his people so much that they're called like a sweet aroma that he enjoys. Uh, how beautiful that is. Well, let me go on a little further now. Uh, in that scene, we have, remember, the, the uh, seven-scrolled book that is now in the hand of Christ, known as the Lion and of the Lamb. And it says in verse 9, going on to describe the worship of these creatures when they see this book in his hand about ready to be un. Uh, unsealed, unloosed. It says, verse 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Oh, this is a wonderful thing. So, as part of their worship, remember the harps? Now we go right into this idea of worship in song. They sang or sung a new song. That word new, I think, is really important there. They've never been able to sing this song because that book has never been taken to be opened, and it never has been opened. It, it will only be opened this one time. It will only be need to be opened this one time. And so when it will be opened, and they're anticipating, they're seeing that about ready to happen, you know, they, they must have known and, and probably mysteriously in the Old Testament, if we did some study, we could probably find uh, a little bit more about this book and maybe what it represents. I think it simply represents the, the end times unfolding uh, itself and finishing all of time. But they're so excited about it that they come up with a new song. And I love the words of this song. Thou art worthy to take the book. See, Jesus deserves our worship because he's worthy. Worship is attributing value to God. Whatever you worship, you attribute value to. And Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. No one else deserves that. Only he does. He's God along with the Father and Spirit. We believe in one God but revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they uh, proclaim him worthy uh, not only take the book, now see, the anticipation of opening the book comes next. And to open the seals thereof. You know, a closed book means nothing. Books are made to be opened and read and revealed. You know, the Bible remains closed on many a person's uh, bookshelf at home or next to their bed or wherever. And is never open. It's useless if it's never open. The Bible is meant to not only be uh possessed, but opened and read and, and, and lived and practiced. And so it says, he opened the seals thereof. And then it says about uh, him, and we know it's Christ, because look at the description. For thou wast slain, past tense. He died only once, once and for all, Hebrews tells us clearly. He made one sacrifice forever to put away sin. And he has redeemed us. See, these are saved people, these elders, these worshipers. And we're going to see in a moment, it's not just going to be them who sing this song. It's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands, all the myriads in heaven will sing this song. And it says that they 
Praise him for redeeming us by thy blood. See, that's the price of redemption. The word redeem comes from the word redemption, the idea of to be, to be bought, to be paid for. Like a slave, is, is, his freedom is, is given to him. He's bought to be free. You know, in the days of slavery, this horrible practice that, uh, of course, taints the history of America and many other places in the world, by the way, through many ages of time, uh, it was commonly known, and it could be done, that people who were against slavery or had pity and mercy on a slave could buy their freedom, could pay enough money to whoever owned them, so to speak, uh, and buy their freedom. And this is the picture of salvation. We were slaves to the devil. We belonged to him because of sin. He deceived our first parents, and, and, and they led us into sin. But Christ paid a redemption price to buy us out of slavery and free us to belong to him and have everlasting life. And belonging to him, we're bought with a price. He's our Lord. Uh, he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. And it's by his blood. That's the redemption price. And so the song praises him for this. And I like it tells us about all the saints. And since this is picturing the end times and, and, and the scene in heaven, very likely that this is saying to us, these are the saints that you and I now that are saved who will be in heaven. This is why I look at chapter 4, verse 1 as the rapture, and we're literally there at this scene. We'll be there, caught up to heaven to be with the Lord. And uh, I think we're there, and we're part of these that are praising Him and that's why we're part of this number. It says of every kindred tongue, people, and nation. Uh, if you go through the history of, uh, of mankind and through all the parts of the world, people have been saved in every part of the world. Thank God for that. Christianity is not some localized religious system. It wasn't just meant for one people group in one place. It was meant to be proclaimed on all the earth. Go into all the world, Jesus said, and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, we see the benefits of that here. And so all these uh, that are redeemed, and it hasn't mentioned them yet, but it's going to mention their, their uh, voices altogether in a moment. Uh, and then in verse 10, he said, And has made us uh, unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Well, uh, this is back from chapter 1. This is the reward of those who serve Christ and those who are blessed by being faithful to the Lord. Uh, we are given this great benefit, this great uh, privilege to reign with Christ on the earth when he sets up his kingdom. Well, let me go through and finish this chapter. He says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, I told you, now we have the whole uh, choir of heaven here. Angels included, many angels. And I think it includes all the saved. Because he talked about redemption, and that's for saved people, not angels. They're not saved. They didn't need to be saved, but we do, and we have need of salvation. Notice what they say with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Well, this is, this is an amazing uh, uh, accolade, an, an amazing crescendo of, of worship 
uh, you can't even, I can't fathom in my mind how this is going to sound. Uh, I've been in a large uh, church services or large uh, concerts or meetings uh, with, with thousands of Christians and, and sang, and it's just amazing to hear all those voices. Can you imagine this? There's going to be millions upon millions, uh, perhaps in the billions. We don't want to try to put a number on it. Only God knows. But everyone is going to be singing and praising the Lamb. He's worthy. He's Christ. He's the Lord. He's God. He's the maker of the universe, the creator of all things. Notice what it says of him. Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, Heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. I want you to notice this. I'm kind of just interpreting as I go to finish the chapter here because it's all part of this final worship scene. Notice Christ is said to be the Lamb sitting on the throne uh, who is worshipped. And he that sitteth on the throne is two different people. How can that be? Well, that's the Father and the Son. Both worthy to be worshipped. So we have two individuals separated there. Uh, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. How could he be worshipped together with him that sit on the throne if he's not equal with him that sits on the throne? He is. He's one with the Father and the Spirit. And so this, this huge multitude of the saved together with all the heavenly host of angels these 24 elders the old testament saints that are there all those that are with us together in heaven i think this happens myself uh, I, timing is always a difficult part of the book of revelation but i think this is happening uh when we first get to heaven or sometime during that seven-year tribulation because starting in the next chapter we're going to see another major change we're going to go back to earth and as glorious and wonderful and joyous as heaven's going to be, it's going to be exactly the opposite on earth. Terror and darkness and bloodshed and death and all kinds of tragedy and horror shall happen on earth. But before we end, let's read verse 14. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. It's kind of like these uh, 24 elders and these four creatures, these angelic beings, they are a representative of all that are worshiping at this time. And so when all have praised Christ and given him uh, worship in all these ways, notice blessing and honor and riches and strength and glory and, and all these ways, every, every way you can describe it, there's just no way any words can fully contain, uh, can, can complete all that should be said. He's so wonderful. And they say amen. Amen's like the final exclamation point of worship. It kind of says, so be it. May it be so. May it happen. And it's forever and ever. I look forward to that day. I hope you do as well. When we will worship him forever and ever. And this world as we know it shall be gone forever. The world passeth away, John wrote. And they and the lust thereof, but they that do the will of the Father shall live forever. Well, we'll end our study there. Lord willing, we'll pick up next time on chapter 6. Thank you for being with me. Remember our motto. It continues into this new year, a new season. Conviction for truth. Compassion for people. God bless you.